Hello and welcome to another episode of the Simple Faith Podcast. My name is Dave Betts and together with my wife Sharia, we are exploring all the things that make our faith, our Christian faith, what it is. We're trying to strip away all of those unnecessarily churchy or overly academic or intellectual words. And instead, what we're chasing after is an authentic, down-to-earth Christianity for normal people like you and me. We're pursuing a simple faith. Now, my wife, Sharia isn't here today. Uh, still, she's looking after our son, JJ, which is great. He's five months old. He's amazing. He's smiling. He's giggling. He's just awesome. But the problem is he's a bit noisy. He's not very good at knowing when not to talk when we're trying to record a podcast. So at this point, during a pandemic where we can't get any babysitters or anyone to uh, look after him at all, we are uh, we're kind of stuck. So at the moment, it's just me. Hopefully you can tolerate my voice and only my voice for the rest of this episode. If not, you know what? You can put it onto double speed or if you're feeling really crazy, you can actually put it onto triple speed as well. Um, I've heard of people putting it onto seven times speed, but I'm not convinced that that works. Uh, if you If you can do it, very good. But anyway, it's just me today. And today we are starting a new series. I'm very excited about this one. It's called Church Mythbusters. Now, you all are probably familiar with the uh, famous TV show called Mythbusters, where uh, they would take these common myths and they would, you've guessed it, they would bust them. They would uh, find out whether they were true or false. And, and you know what? That's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to cover five topics. Uh, and I want to say a big thanks to uh, Steve Cleary, if you're listening to this podcast right now. Thank you. He came up with this uh, idea, this suggestion for us, even actually before we we started the podcast. This was back in a pre-pandemic world when Sharia and I didn't live in Red Deer, Alberta, but we lived in uh, Bracknell in England. And boy, have times changed. But anyway, he suggested that we do this. And here are some of the myths that we're going to cover in the next few weeks. We're going to cover the myth that the Bible is full of contradictions. We're going to do that today. We're going to cover the myth that the size of your church equals the success of your church. We're going to look at the myth that the church is only interested in your money. We're going to look at the myth that the amount you volunteer is kind of a signal of how holy you are. Uh, we're going to look at the myth that there is only one way to do church. So there's a few very common and uh, pervasive myths in our midst, and I'm really excited to look at those. Uh, and the way that we're going to do that today, as we look at the myth that the Bible is full of contradictions, is we are going to uh, talk about why this is important, and then we're going to dive a uh, deep dive into a video uh, by a guy called Dan Barker, who's the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Uh, in, we're going to look at what he describes as his top five contradictions in the Bible. And I'm going to do my best to answer those and explain why I don't think those are contradictions at all and why we can trust the Bible. So with all that in mind, let's jump in. So the question is, why is it important that the Bible isn't full of contradictions? Well, this is an important myth to bust because actually we believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe that uh, the Bible was divinely inspired by God through human authors uh, over a period of 1500 years uh, with 40 different authors in three different languages in uh, Hebrew, and a little bit of Aramaic and in Greek. Uh, we believe that God inspired those people to write the Bible and that these are the very words of God given to us 
for, uh, for teaching, to learn, to grow, to, to get a sense of God's character, to get to know God better. Uh, these are, are really important things. And uh, it would be a real problem if an all-powerful God divinely inspired a book that was full of mistakes and contradictions. And, and actually, the more we study the Bible, the more we, we find that actually there are not any mistakes, which is just, it, it's extraordinary when you think about the breadth of, uh, of the book. You know, when, when you think that it was 1,500 years between the first and the last book, that there are 40 different authors, that there are three different languages, that it's on, uh, written on multiple continents, and yet, there are no contradictions. And as we'll see, we, there, we can answer all of these contradictions. And that does a few things. That reminds us that God is trustworthy. It reminds us that he is all powerful. And it also gives us faith in his word. The more we study it, the more we realize that it's free from error. It gives us this objective standard by which to measure our lives with. And that's a really good thing. Increasingly, we're living in a world where there is no objective moral standard. But for us, the Bible is that. And we can trust it, which is very good when uh, we're in such a, a turbulent time, especially with all the pandemic and all the, the frustration and anger that comes out as a result of it. Now, I do want to say, we've actually done an episode called how can I trust the Bible before? Uh, we we had a, a guy called Simon Argent who joined us and it was a really uh, very helpful episode where he explained to us how we could trust the Bible. So we've already talked about the trustworthy of the Bible, uh, worthiness of the Bible, I should say. But now we're going to talk specifically about some of those contradictions. So uh, we're diving into, as I said before, uh, a, a video by a guy called Dan Barker, who is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And he listed his top five contradictions. So what I thought would be the best thing for us to do is to just go through them one by one and see if we can answer them. Because if these are his top five contradictions, and he is the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, if his top five contradictions don't stand, then surely it stands to reason that some of the other contradictions that are listed don't stand either, right? So the first contradiction is all about Paul. And Paul had this radical conversion experience. And the question is, when Paul was not called Paul, he was called Saul, did his men hear this, the voice as well? Let's look at this passage, Acts 9, and then we'll look at Acts 22. It says this, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, in other words, our faith, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, and this is key, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Just took that way. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, the contradiction is supposedly in Acts 22 verse 9, where it says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. So the contradiction is this. In, in one passage, it says that they heard the sound, but saw no one. And in the second passage, it says, but they did not hear the voice. Now, the it, at first glance, it does certainly sound like a contradiction, but this one is quite easy and it has to do with the original language, with the Greek. So in the Greek language, there's, there's a difference between 
um, hearing a sound and hearing a voice. It's what a guy called Jill Archer calls a thought conveying message, hearing a, hearing a, a message, having a conversation. So uh, as an example, um, Sheree is upstairs with JJ right now. And if I was to take my headphones off and stop talking, I would hear, you know, I'd hear these noises. Uh, I'd hear these sounds, but I wouldn't hear what Sheree is saying to our son. I wouldn't, I would just wouldn't be able to process it through the walls. Uh, so I'm, I'm hearing a sound, but if I was to go upstairs and listen, I would hear thought conveying messages. There's, there's a difference there. And so what we see in this passage is in, in one passage, it's saying, actually, they stood speechless, hearing a sound, but seeing no one. So they, they heard something, but they, they couldn't see anyone. And they certainly couldn't hear the voice that Paul could hear where it says, you know, it says further up, actually, that Paul, uh, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then in Acts 22.9, it says, actually, they didn't hear the voice. There's no contradiction there. They still may have heard the sound, but they didn't hear the voice, the, the, what Archer describes again as that thought conveying message. So that's really uh, important. The, the contradiction, the apparent contradiction is really only in our contemporary English understanding, our contemporary English phraseology for want, want of a better term, I guess. So contradiction number one is no contradiction at all. Uh, the second contradiction is a big question mark about when Jesus was born. So in Matthew 2, 1, it says this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, so the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, in Luke 2, verse 5, it says, yeah, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. Uh, his wife was from the daughters of Aaron and his na her name was Elizabeth. This contradicts, supposedly contradicts uh, Luke 2, uh, at the beginning of Luke 2, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first res registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered each to his own town. Now, unless you're a real history buff, you probably are like, what? This isn't a big deal. This isn't a big deal at all. You know, I'll be honest with you. I had no idea. I, I don't know the ins and outs of histories of King Herod and Quirinius and their dates, but some real history buffs do, people who really want to uh, try and disprove the Bible. And uh, actually, here's the problem. Uh, I, I kind of researched this and found out, actually, there's a few, few different Herods. I knew that there were a few different Herods. And so as you read Acts, there are some different Herods to the one that Jesus was born to. This is uh, King Herod the Great. Um, apparently he died in 4 BC, but Quirinius didn't become gover governor until uh, 6 AD. So that's, that's a, a big gap. There's a potential 10-year discrepancy. Now, if the Bible is the word of God, surely it wouldn't contradict itself and give two differing dates for when Jesus was born. That would be a problem. Uh, so what happened? The question we have to ask is, well, was Jesus born in the days of uh, King Herod the Great or after the census by Quirinius or both? Well, there's a few answers to this. The first one is that our translations say that the first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, but it can also be translated as before Quirinius. If you look at your Bible, most Bibles will have a footnote that will say, uh, instead of while, it could say before. So it could be that it's a biblical translation uh, error, uh, again, not with the original languages, but with our translation into the English. Um, this is a bit of a grammatical stretch. So we're not going to rest our hats on that. That could be one of the reasons. The, the second more likely reason is that Quirinius was governor more than once. 
Now, again, you might be thinking, so what? But this is important because we have to answer these uh, these criticisms from people outside of the faith. Because if they're, the Bible is with error, that's a, a problem. So in, in 1764, something really interesting happened. Uh, they Some archaeologists, I think, uh, found an inscription near what we believe to be the tomb of Quirinius. And on it, it says these really crucial words in there. There's, there's more, but there's one important phrase that says twice legate, twice legate on it. And basically what that means is that he was twice governor. Whoever this person was, was twice governor. If it was Quirinius, well, then we can clearly say, well, maybe Jesus was born during Quirinius's first stint as governor rather than his second stint as governor. But even if the inscription wasn't referring to Quirinius, what we see is this uh, precedent that it's possible for someone to be governor twice. So uh, I think the most likely solution is that Quirinius was maybe governor for the first time when King Herod the Great was in power, and then governor for the second time, taking up a census in 6 AD. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. Who cares? Uh, maybe this is really interesting for you. I hope it is really interesting to you. If you if you think, nah, it doesn't really matter, just tuck this away because actually this historical um, proof, if you like, is uh, it's really important. It's really important for our faith. Now, oh, I want to be clear here as well that this is not definitive evidence that Quirinius was in fact governor twice, but we've seen two reasons that actually it's plausible that this isn't a contradiction at all. So yes, it's plausible that it's a contradiction, but it's also plausible that it isn't a contradiction. So uh, there is no, there's no weight to the, the allegation that this is a contradiction, right? It can easily be argued away, which means we just don't know. Now, I would lean towards the fact that I think Quirinius was governor more than once and that he was governor the first time uh, when King Herod the Great was, uh, was ruling. So that was contradiction number two. Contradiction number three says, well, did Jesus really come to bring peace? Uh, in Luke 2.14, it says, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. John 14.27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. Uh, Acts 10.36, he sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. And then there's uh, John 16. I've told you these things in, uh, so that in me, you may have peace. Uh, you, will ha you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous because I have conquered the world. Uh, John 16, 33, that was, I did add a few buts and becauses and I should have done that. Uh, Mark 5, 34, the daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your infliction. Go in peace. So there's lots of references to peace. And yet, in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36, it says, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. In Luke 12, 51, it says, Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Well, again, that seems like a pretty big contradiction. Did Jesus come to bring peace or did he not come to bring peace? Well, I think, again, this answer is pretty straightforward. It's not necessarily an easy one for us to hear, though. So let's walk through this carefully. The first one says, uh, the first passage we looked at, said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. Notice that, to people he favors. Acts 10.36 said, he sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He's Lord of all. Uh, what we 
need to remember is that, yes, Jesus is coming to bring peace, but only if we choose to follow him, only if we believe in him. He's bringing peace through the cross. You know, we know that uh, there is a division between us and God because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. And because of that sin, yeah, we don't get to be in a relationship with God anymore because of that original sin. And we just can't help but going our own way instead of God's way. But uh, we are struggling to find ourselves living in a way that is righteous, in a, living in a way that is honoring to God. And so what God did was he sent his only son to die for us so that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. So through the cross, uh, we do get peace. In fact, Isaiah 53 says, it talks about the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Uh, when we choose to follow Jesus, we can have peace, you know, peace on earth to people he favors. We are favored by God when we choose to follow him, when we become children of God. Um, but you know, the, the tough bit is that if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's going to be a time where there will not be peace. Uh, you might be experiencing now, we're experiencing uh, some of the, the offshoots of the sinfulness of this world. We took, we've just gone down a series on suffering. We're experiencing the, the remnants of, of sin, the, the, the sin that still rages on in this world. But there will be peace for those who believe. And actually, that peace will not come if you choose not to follow Jesus. And that's a big deal. Know that you can choose to follow Jesus today. If you're listening to this podcast right now, wherever you are, you don't need someone uh, next to you doing anything supernatural, like praying for you or laying hands or anything. Or you can just say to God, go straight to God and say, actually, I want to follow you. I want to, I want to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I want to uh, turn away from the things that I've done wrong, the sinfulness in my, uh, in my life. And I want to turn towards you. And when you do that, you get to experience the peace of God. So you can experience peace. So no contradiction, peace for some, not peace for all. That's really hard to hear, but it's the truth and it's what the Bible teaches us. The next contradiction is, well, who was Joseph's father? Have you ever thought about that? Probably not. Um, it's not It's not something we tend to pay tons of, tons of attention to. We often look at um, these family trees in the Bible. The Bible calls them, well, we call them genealogies which again is a really churchy word, isn't it? But it's essentially a family tree, but it's a, a bit more important than a family tree because the heritage of the Jewish people was so, so vital at the time. And in Matthew 1.16, we see that it says that Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary. So, okay, it appears that Jacob is Joseph's dad uh, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. So that's the rest of that verse there. Now, the contradiction is in Luke 3, verse 23. It says, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. Um, okay, so is Joseph the son of Jacob or is Joseph the son of Heli? Again, this might be a really important contradiction. If you are trying to find discrepancies in the Bible, this might be a really big deal to you. And I appreciate that if you've been a Christian for all of your life or um, you haven't maybe studied these gospels quite so intently to notice these differences between these individual words, you might think this just is not a big deal, but it is a big deal. We are trying to prove that the Bible is trustworthy and without error. So the answer to this one is, is that, well, we don't know for sure. <laughs> we don't know for sure what the answer is. I, I think there are some logical potential answers. So 
Firstly, the New International Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. That's a really good book and it's got a crazy name. So I would recommend uh, picking that up if you're interested in, in digging deeper in this. The New International Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. It proposes that well, because the genealogy is following the line of Mary all the way back to Adam, the first man, that's the point is to kind of lead Jesus back to Adam, who was the first man. Heli is actually Joseph's father-in-law. So um, genealogies, family trees in those days, it went through the male. So it used to trace the male heritage. And I know, I know what you're thinking. It's, that's very misogynistic and all that stuff. And that was just the way the, the culture was back then. And uh, it, it would trace the line through the male. So what could have happened in the Luke passage is that it started with Mary, but then jumped to the next male. So um, because Mary and Joseph are, are married, it's looking at um, it's looking at Joseph instead of Mary. So Joseph then to Heli, and then following that line all the way up. Because both the the lines, both the family trees, are really important for for displaying different things. Um, you know, the, the second option, by the way, is that. Uh, I saw this one suggested by John Piper, who's this really famous preacher. He suggests that the the genealogy in Matthew and Luke are just highlighting different things. So you know, in Matthew, what's really interesting is it goes from really old to new. So it goes from Abraham to Jesus. But in Luke, it goes from uh, Jesus to old. So it goes from new to old, from Jesus to, to Adam. So what we see is uh, a different focus in these lines, but also Luke chronicles way more generations than Matthew does. Matthew, uh, he's skipping a few generations in order to highlight certain points, in order to highlight key relations uh, of Jesus in the history of the Old Testament. Whereas what Luke is doing, he's got, I think it was something like 77 generations or something. It's a lot. I, I can't remember exactly how it was, how many it was. But what he's he's doing is highlighting a lot more generations. And in which case, Maybe it just makes more sense to fit Heli in there, whereas Jacob would perhaps be further up the line. We don't know for sure. Uh, I would say um, it's an interesting question, but it's not, a, it's not a stretch to know that actually it could just be focusing on different things. Interestingly, it looks like Mary and Joseph's lines split after King David, but uh, I could be wrong there. So I'm not going to hang my hat on that. I, I think it's just, just an interesting statement that I think Mary and Joseph had similar lines until I think King David. And then um, it was Solomon and oh, I can't remember who the other guy was, um, where they just kind of split. I think, I think it's worth looking up if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Okay, so we've got one more contradiction to look at. And I hope you're sticking with me here because remember, these are what Dan Barker, the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, describes as the most important contradictions in the Bible, the biggest contradictions. And so far, we haven't really had to try particularly hard to refute his claim, right? To, to say that he's wrong. Um, and, and again, I know that some of this might not be interesting to you. You might not be a big history buff. You might be, be wondering about um, other questions, but these are really important questions to grapple with. So this last one is, is well, was Jesus's tomb opened before or after the women arrived, right? So when the women came to see him early in the morning on the day after the Sabbath, well, was the, was the tomb already open or was it, was it not? Uh, Matthew 28 verses 1 to 2 says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. So that seems like the angel came down, rolled back the stone, and they saw it all, right? Which is a contradiction to John 20, Mark and Luke, which says, John 20 verse 1 says, 
On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, as opposed to um, dawning. But anyway, she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Um, Mark 16, 4. Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Luke 16, 2 says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So was the tomb, uh, was the stone rolled away from the tomb or not? Have you ever thought about that? Again, maybe you've never given that any kind of consideration. I, I'll be honest, this wasn't something that I'd given any con- consideration to. It's a really interesting one. You see, all the accounts talk about it being the first day of the week. So we know that. And we know that it was early in the morning. Maybe the day was dawning. I feel like Postman Pat here. Uh, but um, maybe if you've never heard of Postman Pat, you should listen to it. Maybe it's YouTube the early in the morning, just as day is dawning. I need Sheree to keep me on track. Anyway, so maybe the, the stone had been rolled away. Or you know, did they see the angel of the Lord descend? Like I can understand how this would be a, a, a confusing to- topic. But actually, as with some of these other apparent contradictions, the answer is really in the original language, which is why it's really helpful to have some understanding of the original language. Now, the reality is so many scholars have this deep understanding of Greek and Hebrew that uh, we can often find the information we're looking for. Um, but, you know, I have a very, 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 very basic understanding of Greek, probably not enough to come up to these answers myself. But I found an answer in um, Young's literal translation. So what this translation of the Bible is, is it's trying to translate it as literally to, to the Greek as possible. So it sounds super weird sometimes, but it's really helpful. So uh, if you listen to uh, Matthew 28 in, in the most literal translation of the Greek. This is what kind of as close to what it was, would have sounded like in the original Greek. It says, And lo, there came a great earthquake for a messenger of the Lord, having come down out of heaven, having come, did roll away the stone from the door and was sitting on it. So as you can see, even just from hearing the literal translation, what we see is a slight differences of tense. So in the English, the original English that we heard, it says, Oh, well, there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. So you'd think in our contemporary English way of of processing it, we'd we'd do it sequentially, right? We'd go, okay, well, there was an earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended and then he approached the tomb and then he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. But actually what the 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 literal translation is saying is how that there was, there came a great earthquake for a messenger of the Lord, having come down out of heaven, so he'd already come, did roll away the stone from the door and was sitting on it. So you see the tense. It's saying, well, actually, he did do those things. So we can already see that something had already happened, a sense of it being in the past. So uh, that's quite easy to refute when you look at the original languages. We're saying, well, actually, it was already in the past. It's just hard for us to translate it in a way that is... um, using our contemporary language without sounding confusing or challenging or, or whatever. So it's probably just not a great translation of that passage. Now, the question is, uh, this might be a follow-up question you have. How did, uh, how did Matthew know that an angel of the Lord came down from heaven you know, if no one was there, if the, the women weren't there? Well, there's, again, two possible answers for this. Perhaps the, the Holy Spirit gave him uh, insight into what happened. There's a very likely situation that, you know, kind of prophetically he understood what was going on uh, because the Holy Spirit kind of inspired him. And we're talking about the divinely inspired word of God, of course. Or um, Matthew 28 verses 11 to 15 are really interesting here. Perhaps one of the guards saw it happen. Matthew 28 
verses 11 to 15 actually says that the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had happened. So again, not completely sure, but there are reasonable answers. Uh, I would say just as reasonable as um, refute as these uh, these apparent contradictions. I would say it's it's more likely that there isn't a contradiction because we do believe that this is the word of God and we've experienced God in our lives. If I hope you've experienced God in your life as well. So we have our experience and we see that the Bible holds up pretty, pretty firmly to these refutations, to these, um, these allegations, these claims that there are contradictions in the Bible. So with that in mind, I hope you've stuck with me. I hope you haven't fallen asleep, but uh, and I hope that you've been filled with confidence that actually the Bible is not full of contradictions. I mean, these are supposedly the toughest contradictions and they weren't particularly hard to answer. Um, there are lots of supposed contradictions in the Bible, but be assured that there is always a solution. I've yet to find in 14 years of studying the Bible intensely, I've yet to find a contradiction that's held up. So that's good news. That's really encouraging, right? I hope you found this episode helpful. Uh, do get in touch with us, leave a comment or uh, a review. We just love to hear what you're thinking. If you're listening to this, let us know. It's really encouraging to hear. Um, Give this podcast to someone else if you think it's going to be helpful for them. Uh, That's it for this week. Next week, uh, I'm going to be joined by uh, Dave Rogers, who is an elder at Ascot Life Church. And we're going to uh, explore the myth that the size of your church equals the success of your church. Is size important when it comes to church? We'll find out next week. Have a fantastic week, whatever it is you're doing, wherever you are in the world. uh, We love you. We're praying for you. And uh, we pray that you will have a blessed week. Speak to you soon. Bye.